Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia, and is, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today having written well over 100 books. And today we are speaking out his book, A History of Europe, From Prehistory to 21st Century. Welcome, Professor Black. Good afternoon. Professor Black, why did you write this book? Uh, This book's what's known as a crossover book, and a crossover book is an attempt to write a book that's attractive to the general public, so this book is handsomely illustrated, but is also reflecting scholarship. And there is an argument that you will often hear in the publishing trade that crossover books are dead, that basically the general reader doesn't want expertise, they just want easy stories. I don't believe that. I think you will always find a portion of the public that is only too keen to actually have a clear and concise account, which also attracts them by giving them, as it were, introducing to them the key concepts. And that's what I've tried to do. Does your book have a thesis? Yes, I think the thesis is one of indeterminacy, that there is no inevitable direction that Europe moved in, and linked to that, that there is no clear clarity as to what we mean by Europe. So that, I, as I engage explicitly in the text, there, it's not clear whether one's talking about a geographical space, a cultural space, a religious space, and precisely because different meanings have been offered, um, one can have very contrasting accounts of the history of Europe. What is the idea of Europe in its origins? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the term itself, of course, was used by the Greeks. I think what one can most fairly say is the idea which you get essentially in the Mediterranean, that there are three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, And that is the origins of the notion of Europe. Of course, if you'd gone to the average uh, community on, shall we say, the Baltic, trading amber southwards, they would have had no concept whatsoever as to what Europe meant. So in a sense, what one's talking about is an attempt to structure space, but one that doesn't mean very much to the vast bulk of the people that lived uh, at the time. Ex post facto, do you consider the Ottoman Empire was part of Europe, qua Europe? No, I don't. I think that the Ottoman Empire was a very different cultural space. It is true that it uh, owed a certain amount to uh, the inheritance from Byzantium, from the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and indeed used the same capital, of course, Constantinople, now in Istanbul. 
But on the other hand, there was a, a very much a, um, a different culture. I think that's underplayed today because of all the vogue for transnationalism. But, for example, the compulsory handing over of um, a certain amount of young Christian males in order for them to be Islamicized and to be slave soldiers of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the notion of Islam as a privileged religion, the fact that when um, cities were taken over, um, Candia, for example, in Crete, uh, they destroy the churches or they change them into mosques. No, I think one can very much see an idea of, as it were, a boundary across Europe. And as I said, I make this quite clear, this is very unfashionable as a view at the moment, because the view at the moment um, based essentially on the desire to make multi-ethnicity work and multiculturalism work, um, endlessly uh, talks about Al-Andalus, Andalusia in the southern Spain, which of course I've discussed in my history of Spain, and the period there, the brief period there in the 10th century, when there was a relatively syncretic political system uh, drawing together um, Islamic and Christian uh, traditions. And you can see the same in Sicily in the early 12th century. But the reality repeatedly is, of course, (laughs) of animosity. And it's very ironic at the moment that there's all the discussion going on about slavery, which is presented as explicitly a matter of the cruelty of white societies towards people of African descent. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, that if you lived on the shores of Spain or southern France or Italy, for hundreds and hundreds of years, from the 8th century until the 17th century, um, you would have the risk of being seized and taken off to slavery. And in the case of Algiers, for example, this went on until 1830. So I think uh, one needs to understand that there was a great animosity and difference, and cities such as Sophia or Thessalonica, um, Athens, have only been back under Christian control within the last 200 years. I mean, Thessalonica, it's just over 100 years ago um, in the first uh, Balkan War that it uh, uh, was, uh, was in which the Ottoman Turks were driven out. What were the earliest large-scale settlements in Europe, and why did that settlement subsequently fail? The largest large-scale, sorry, settlement. What were the earliest large-scale settlements? Well, I should imagine that if one's thinking of large settlements, one's probably thinking of the Minoan Greeks and the culture um, that is associated with both Crete, the uh, Minoan civilization, and Mycenae on the Peloponnese, the mainland. And we don't know precisely why they failed. There's all sorts of suggestions. One of them, of course, is the explosion of the volcano at Santorini. There are there are also explanations in terms of so-called sea peoples raiding them. The reality is we don't know. And I think it's fair to say that um, much of the history of what we now call Europe, um, particularly uh, far from the Mediterranean, obviously the area I'm talking about is Mediterranean there, but particularly far from the Mediterranean, is fairly obscure until, shall we say, if you're looking at, say, in, in you know the interior of Sweden, for example, or Lithuania, maybe you'd be looking about a thousand years ago. Um, if you're looking at 
Greece, I think it's fair to say, and famously the discussion of what really happened at Troy, um, you could say that um, it's only really in the last 2,500 years that we have a certain degree of clarity and that we move towards uh, historical sources that we can interrogate with a degree of clarity. Why were the Greco-Persian Wars important in the construction of a sense of a European idea, ex novo, different from, say, the autocracies of Asia? Well, the, uh, the Greco-Persian Wars, and we're here talking about the uh, 5th century BC, uh, Salamis, for example, and Thermopylae and Plytea, we're looking at 480 and 479. Marathon, we're looking at 490 BC. They were ones which were, as it were, expounded by the Greeks in terms of them uh, defending their civilization against an alien force from the East, which was an autocracy. Now, to a degree, this was true. I mean, if one looked at how uh, the Archimedean Persian Empire had behaved already in suppressing uh, the Greek city-states on uh, the Ionian coast of the Aegean, so that's roughly where uh, Izmir and Ephesus are today. I think that's a fairly accurate portrayal. I mean, obviously, one could complicate it by pointing out that some Greek principalities were willing or coerced into allying with Persia. You could point out that the Athenians didn't uh, uh, always uh, operate with terrible uh, kindness towards um, states, Greek states in their ambit and the same of the Spartans. But I think there was fundamentally a reasonable view here that however constrained many Greek cities did have, um, albeit for only part of their populace, a kind of... Um, what we would see as a citizen democracy, and the last thing you were going to associate with the Persian Empire is a citizen democracy. Why did Greek culture expand so greatly in the period from the 8th century BC to the 3rd century BC? Well, at the end, of course, one's looking at the um, expansion of Hellenistic society um, in the uh, aftermath of the conquests of Alexander the Great, the uh, uh, famous ruler of Macedon, um, and that leads to um, a number of dynasties being established. The Ptolemies, for example, in Egypt, Seleucids um, are the, key, the two key ones. And these became um, centers for the dissemination of uh, a Greek or a Hellenistic syncretic um, culture, and so that you end up with situations like Alexandria, for example, is in many respects a Greek city. And I think there are a number of factors one can look at. Uh, I think that in comparative terms, uh, Greek culture, and I think it pre this prefigures uh, modern Western culture, these are cultures which leave a role for the individual. They're not caste societies as, for example, modern India. Um, there are societies in which, to a great extent, people are interested in not where you come from, but where you're going to. And I think that's a key feature in a successful uh, society. Now, as you will know, to make comments like that these days is regarded as highly um, irregular, if not a probably a macro aggression. But I do think that historians ought to consider 
uh, differences between cultures. They need to do it with sympathy. They need to understand why people make choices or some, many of them don't get a choice. But it's absurd to pretend that all societies are equal in the sense of uniform. And once you take away from that view, you will notice that there are major contrasts between how they behave. What explains the success of Rome as an empire? Uh, well, Rome as an empire owes a lot to military success, particular sequential warfare, in other words, not fighting a large number of enemies at the same time. I think that's very important. It owes a lot to the weakness of the late Hellenistic um, states. I think that's very important. Um, but also, I think that the capacity of the Roman system to integrate first uh, other peoples within Italy and then uh, within the what becomes the empire as a whole, so that if you're a talented Spaniard, in the case of Hadrian and Trajan, you can become uh, emperor. I think that's very, very important. So it is a militaristic system, but it's a militaristic system which is not based on racial hostility, and nor is it based on sectarianism. As long as you're willing um, to accept the position of the Roman uh, gods as in part of your religious pantheon. In other words, as long as you're a polytheist, and most people were polytheists, you know, it's pretty unusual to be a Jew or a Christian for quite a while. Um, so as long as you're a polytheist, you can actually fit into the Roman system quite nicely. And again, um, you know, this contrasts with many empires in history, which have been defined by exclusivity. In other words, being alienated to or treating in a very hostile fashion those of a different religion and ethnicity. And it's no accident that in the 19th century, well, indeed, before that, the British, when they were thinking of a historical origin uh, myth, account, uh, view, you can use whichever term you like for their own empire, uh, focused on that of Rome. What is your Gibbonesque answer to the query as to why the Roman Empire fell? Well, um, you know, there are several points there. I mean, ultimately, the Roman Empire didn't fall till 1453 and the capture of Constantinople by uh, Mehmed II. But if by that you mean the Western Roman Empire, uh, where the last emperor is deposed in 476, and I think that there is no single one factor. Um, I think that the empire itself suffered from civil warfare, um, many of the so-called barbarians were in fact playing a role within civil warfare within the Roman system. And I think that is a problem in its last century and a half, an increasing level of uh, attempts by military figures, meritocratic monarchy, if you like, to seize the imperial dynasty. Um, I think, uh, destiny, I'm sorry, uh, I think there are also significant uh, economic problems. There are um, the issues with um, plague, bubonic plague, which particularly is significant, hit Byzantium in the 6th century very hard when it briefly reconquers uh, much of Italy, part of Spain, and looks as though that it will recreate um, a Roman Empire, or at least a Mediterranean Roman Empire. Um, so it's a whole host of factors. Um, what I certainly don't think it's to do with is any sense of, um, of, as it were, 
how should one put it, unique moral failings, which is one of the ways that for a long time people looked at it. And of course, it's worth bearing in mind that the other great empire in the world at that period, the Han Chinese Empire, had declined, fought, fell, come to an end uh, shortly before the Western Roman Empire. Did uh, Europe, I suppose specifically Western Europe, suffer from something called the Dark Ages? Well, again, this is a fascinating um, debate, the extent to which there was a cultural breach um, uh, linked to the so-called barbarian kingdoms or the extent to which there's continuity. I mean, clearly, it varies in part depending upon where you are, um, that in some areas uh, there is more continuity. Let's say Apulia in Italy, uh, there is more continuity uh, than if you're looking at Wales. Um, so I think partly it is that. I mean, I, we don't know enough about the extent to which um, the invaders, as it were, pushed out the... Uh, pre-existing populations, the extent to which they intermarried with them, the ex extent to which they're a new elite, or the extent to which they are actually a new population. And the answer presumably is, again, that varies depending upon where, there is, where you are. I think there was certainly a sense of a major discontinuity, and that sense was encapsulated by many Christian commentators who were a angry and concerned about the way in which um, the authority of the church, and in some places the actual, um, its actual control over the populace had, had been limited or had come to an end. Um, but the extent to which the average peasant um, would have noticed an enormous difference is much less clear. How important was the Carolingian revival in the late 18th, the eight, late 8th century, early 9th century, to renewed sense of European civilization? Well, the Carolingian uh, revival, and uh, for listeners, the most prominent ruler there is the Emperor Charlemagne, who, of course, is crowned the Roman Emperor uh, by the Pope in 800 in Rome, uh, represented uh, in some respect a new identity for Europe, but of course it's an identity for Europe, which in part is that against that of Byzantium. So in a sense, uh, there is a, um, a sharing of interests between Pope Leo, who wants the support of Charlemagne against rival um, Italian uh, princes, and also um, is you know, concerned about the way Byzantium views him. So that's on the one hand, and on the other hand, Charlemagne, who is looking for, as it were, legitimacy, as it were, to claim Romanitas. Of course, he's not the first of the barbarians to do that. Theodoric, the ruler of the Ostrogoths, had very much done that. But Charlemagne does it in a more lasting fashion. And it's very important to the Western European identity, the Catholic identity, if you like, of Europe. But obviously, if your identity uh, is, is predicated around, uh, shall we say, um, those churches, those religious groups who we would describe as orthodox, um, whether they are uh, look eventually to um, 
Greek Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, or indeed uh, Bulgaria, for the, the Bulgars for a while had had a separate patriarch. Um, though for those, um, I think it's fair to say that this is not part of the construction of a positive Europe. How unique was the British state in the 10th century? Um, well, you're thinking here of the what's known as English the old state. English monarchy. Yeah, the English, the old English monarchy, which is the Kingdom of Wessex, and the key element about it was not so much about the driving out of the Danes or the bringing them under uh, subjugation. Um, I think the key element here is a form of monarchy in which you are not reliant primarily on what we would what we would call, as it were, um, aristocratic lineage, but you're reliant on the support of public institutions, particularly uh, the Shire and the free men who gather together in the Shire in order to uh, vote uh, with, as it were, by acclamation, in order to, uh, who, as it were, do the same as, as jurors and who also serve in the military. And there is a degree of stability here that is very impressive. Of course, it comes to an end uh, with the uh, new bout of um, uh, Danish invasions in the early 11th century, uh, which leads in 1016 to uh, the rule of uh, King Canute. Uh, please define what some historians refer to as the medieval synthesis. Well, yes, I think this is, could be very, very, very variously defined because there are lots of syntheses on offer. What I would like to do is to point out that the medieval space, if you like, by which I am thinking here of medieval Christendom, was one that was influenced by a number of different uh, drives culturally and politically, but that we actually in practical terms don't always know how effective they were. So let me give you an example. When I was an undergraduate, my lectures on uh, medieval history in the first year were given by Walter Ullman, great uh, uh, Austrian scholar, um, a very religious Catholic who had fled from Hitler because the uh, Nazis suppressed the Dolphus uh, uh, regime government system. Now, Ullman very much had the idea that papal authority, what he called the hierocratic theme, the Gregorian reform, Innocent III, represented the the key, as it were, driving force in uh, in Christian culture. And he was only really thinking about Western Christendom. And therefore, everything else came in with that. And he was interested in the intellectuals linked to that. Um, uh, you know, Aquinas, for example, the University of Paris. Well, that's great. But it was very interesting because I, I can remember reading when I was an undergraduate at the same time, Peter Linehan's work on the church in Castile in the 13th century. So that's the period during and after the Lateran Council that Innocent III calls in 1215. And of course, what he shows is that the vast majority of uh, Castilian bishops, forget about the, the laity, pay absolutely no attention of, of all to the, uh, to the Pope. And I think there is always a difficulty when you're looking at medieval culture, when you're looking at medieval governance, to work out the relationship between idea of ideas of authority, power, legitimacy, uh, philosophical, as it were, exactitude, 
and the multiplicity of compromises and differences in viewpoint and practice that actually existed. Would it be correct to say that on a long-term basis, the loss of the Hundred Years' War by England was a good thing rather than a bad thing? Well, the, um, just for the benefit of listeners, uh, Edward III had claimed the throne of France, uh, arguing that his claim was better in uh, dynastic terms. This led to a series of wars, and ultimately in 1453, the English forces were driven from France with the exception of Calais, which they held on to until 1558, and the Channel Islands, which are still part of the royal patrimony. And although the, uh, the English crown went on claiming to be king of France till the beginning of the 19th century, um, in practical terms, by the early 16th century, English monarchs had accepted that it was a busted flush. Now, the question of whether that was a good thing is an interesting one. It certainly made identity in terms of a proto-nationalism. One might even use the term a nationalism. The idea of an English identity reflected constitutionally and politically in Parliament expressed in a particular body of law, the common law, expressed in a language, the English vernacular, and as it were no longer being led to sustain the, um, the as it were, foreign or French or whichever term you wish to use, territorial interests of the monarch. I think that was quite significant. And it's, in, in other words, it provides a background to the response to the Protestant Reformation uh, in the 16th century. Uh, which uh, brings me to my next question. Uh, how important was the Protestant Reformation in giving a different sense of European identity? Well, the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Reformation or Counter-Reformation, both terms have been used in response. And one way of looking at the Protestant Reformation is to say it was a Catholic Reformation which went independent. Um, the end effect was um, a splintering of the political identity of uh, non-Ottoman, non-Turkish uh, Europe. And I think there's no doubt at all about that. And it's only recently, uh, with religion having become to a degree, though I don't want to push this too far, um, less important uh, in terms of political identity, it's only recently that that has been, um, as it were, put to one side, certainly by the governing elites of, uh, of European societies and states. But for much of the period from the 16th century through to the 19th century, divisions and differences between Protestants and Catholics were a prime element of the identity of both and obviously lessened uh, alternative conceptions of Europeanness. Do you adhere to the concept of the so-called general crisis of the 17th century? Well, the general crisis of the 17th century is an interesting one. This crisis, in part, um, uh, was based upon what appeared to be a series of risings, uh, the English Civil War, uh, rising the Fronde in France, uh, Catalan and, and Portuguese rebellions in the Spanish monarchy, risings in Sicily, Naples, uh, 
Constantinople, um, uh, Moscow, and the attempt to find common causes, common elements. Now, I think um, there are problems here because while it is the case that um, they, you can argue that on the global level, in the mid-17th century, you have a particular accentuation of a general environmental challenge. And I don't think there's any, um, there's any doubt about that. And people have talked about the possibility of spots on the sun and this sort of thing. The reality is that not all states had crises and that many of the elements were different. So in some states, what you've got is rebellions by essentially peripheral uh, areas that want greater autonomy or independence, Portugal, Scotland, uh, Catalonia are classic instances. In other places, you've got rebellions at the center. You know, obviously, Paris, Constantinople, Moscow are clear instances. In some places, and here I'm putting inverted commas around these, um, traditionally those groups having seen as rebels have been quote uh, progressive and in other places not progressive. But interestingly enough, you have a, re a repetition of that when you're looking at the so-called Atlantic revolutions of the 1780s and 90s, which go in very different directions. So I would be wary. I think it's often historians are overly keen to discern patterns when they look at the past. And I would be very wary about this pattern making. 200 plus years on, what do you make of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution? Did one inevitably lead to the other? No, the Enlightenment does not uh, inevitably lead to the uh, French Revolution. I mean, Enlightenment itself was a minority movement. You might well say the French Revolution is a minority movement. But if you look at other places which have so-called Enlightenments, I mean, uh, I think one can find one. Certainly the work of Roy Porter has argued you could find it in England. It's generally often found in Scotland. I don't think one would see these as particularly revolutionary scenarios. No, I think the, um, uh, uh, the uh, revolution in France uh, was, in a sense, fortuitous in its uh, origins, uh, didn't have to take the form it did. Um, uh, it Subsequently, of course, there was, as you know, there's a very good book by John Roberts, The Myth of the Secret Societies, which argued that, as it were, radicals were underlying um, the revolution. Um, well, I, there were some radicals trying to do that, but the idea that the whole thing was a great conspiracy, no, I don't think that was the case at all. And I think in many senses, what it did show, which is much more interesting for today, is that once you start to encourage instability, you do not know where it is going to end. So in practical terms, in 1791, both the um, crown, Louis XVI, and the majority of those who wanted a measure of change. They both lost control of the situation because they were unable to create a relationship that would work. And in that position, paranoia spreads, the whole situation collapses. So it's rather like 1917 in Russia. And indeed, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that many of those who attack and criticize the nature of government today often do not understand uh, the potential hazards that come from instability. 
Was the rise of nationalism in 19th century Europe a good thing or not? Well, again, I, um, it's interesting we use the term good or bad. I mean, that reflects, as you will know, the way the public tend to think of things. It's the way academics are not encouraged to think. So um, if we just move aside from that um, uh, for one second, what I would say is nationalism is a protean force, which can be, if you wish to use the term, both good and bad. You can find some of the so-called nationalist uh, movements uh, were ones in which you got, um, uh, as it were, the challenging of imperial links, which had only a relatively modest, degree of support. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the creation of blood and soil nationalism, often heavily ethnic in its character, um, was not, uh, on the whole, uh, in my view, helpful. Um, and I don't think it was helpful in Europe in the 19th century. And I don't think it's been particularly helpful in much of the world um, over the last 50 years. And the imperial structures with their attempt to uh, maintain, a, obviously in their own interest, uh, multi-ethnic societies, and I think were actually better for many of the people that lived in them than the nation states that uh, succeeded them. Would you characterize the two world wars as constituting one European civil war? No, that thesis was advanced by a number of people. I mean, uh, uh, Michael Howard wrote a very superficial piece which uh, was published arguing that that, no, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous proposition. I mean, if you think about it for a kickoff, I mean, World War II, in terms of large-scale fighting, begins, begins in 1937 with the Japanese invasion of China. Japan is a very major player in World War II. Japan is only a minor player in World War I, etc., etc. There are many different between the two wars. And I think it's a classic example of a rather shallow approach to historical analysis. Uh, they were different militarily, uh, they were different in their political uh, context, um, and they were different in their outcome as well. Um, as you will know, in 1918, when the war came to a close, not a single one of the capitals of the central power states were, had been captured uh, by the forces uh, of the Allies, whereas in 1945, the situation looks very, very different if you're in, uh, uh, in Rome or Vienna or Berlin. And of course, in Japan, um, Tokyo has been very heavily bombed. What explains the relative stability of post-1945 Europe, in particular Western Europe, well, the relative stability of post-1945 Europe um, in large part was to do with um, NATO, uh, the American presence, uh, the long boom economically from 1945 into the early 70s, um, the extent to which many of the elites had been discredited by what had happened in the 1940s, um, and also a measure of fear about um, the communists taking over. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, a number of reasons. I mean, it's rather funny now because obviously the European Union lays claim um, to having kept Europe peaceful. But I think NATO did a, a much better job. And indeed, um, 
you could also say the um, financial and commercial infrastructure uh, that uh, was put in place from 1944 onwards, you know, the Bretton Woods IMF system. In retrospect, how predictable was the fall of communism and the Soviet empire? Well, in retrospect, nothing is predictable. I mean, communism survived, for example, very clearly in China, and the Chinese government proved to be very different in its response to that of the Soviet Union. Um, so nothing is inevitable, but I certainly think it was very clear that despite all the uh, protagonists on the left of state planning and communism, etc., etc., the fact is it was an economic shambles. It did not engage the support or enthusiasm of more than a small portion of the population. Um, so from that point of view, it was weak. But on the other hand, the uh, the uh, the end effect of that the it was very unclear as to what would have happened. How do you see the evolution of Europe in the next fifty years? Well, I think there's an interesting question about the evolution of Europe because it's a question of whom do you mean by the Europeans? I mean, many European states, if you abstract first generation immigrants, uh, these states their population is low. Uh, it's either at ZPG or may even be falling in some places. You're thinking of places like Italy or Hungary. So you've got aging populations. And I think that there is um, a degree of loss of confidence there that is really rather arresting. Um, other than that, it's very hard to say. I mean, the world itself is on this unpredictable experiment that whereas Europe uh, and Japan their populations are falling or on or are declining in the, the, the percentage of the world's population. The rest of the world's population is going up extraordinarily rapidly. And I mean, COVID has been uh, just a, a, not even a blip uh, in this respect. You'd be hard pressed to know from reading the news that the world's population has not been going up every single week during the COVID uh, epidemic. Um, so the effect of that is unclear in relative terms. Europeans, like Americans, enjoy a standard of living uh, which is different to that of the average person in the population of the world. The degree to which they are going to be able to sustain those living standards and to protect their position uh, is unclear. The way in which and the extent to which the manner in which you're going to get relationships between the generations is unclear. And in a specific case of Europe, it's unclear how well the European Union will work. It is um, a situation in which nobody seems able to conceive of an alternative, but the positive enthusiasm for it is distinctly limited. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, the book's got fantastic illustrations. <laughs> it's really a great pleasure to handle and to look at. I've just actually had today my very latest book, which is a history of the Mediterranean, which I have to say is, you know, I was looking at it, it's an extremely well-written and interesting book, but it doesn't have any illustrations in at all. Whereas this one, the history of Europe, uh, has got the most, you know, wonderfully selected and interesting um, illustrations. And it was a great pleasure to write around those. And in fact, the design skills and issues, if you produce an illustrated book, are very different to those in which you're just producing text. Upon that observation, which I agree with entirely, 
I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.